episode 136, Sustainable Recovery Over Addiction. I'm your host, Dr. Justin Trost-Claire, and today we are at Timothy Harrington's Perspective. Join 2017 and 2018 Podcast Awards-nominated host as we get a behind-the-curtain look at all types of doctors and guest specialties. Let's hear a doctor's perspective. Welcome back to the show, everybody. I'm excited to announce that we are definitely going to have a dentist series. I haven't had one of those yet. I think we have three booked, and I'm hoping to go up to about six. We're going to cover all aspects from managers to buying and selling, customer service experts, actual procedures, you know, all those types of things. Really excited about that. Again, the podiatry series was a couple months ago now. Uh, you can get all the resources at a doctorsperspective.net slash podiatry. Kind of was a similar situation. Uh, I'm enjoying these series. Kind of going deep into it. It's fun. I got a secret project planned. It's secret. So that's all I'm going to say for now. But today's guest has a real passion for removing the stigma of addiction because it's a mental health issue. And a lot of times in mental health, as he says, we don't get you treatment when two wheels are broken. All four wheels got to be off. Life's a wreck before you can get help. That's just messed up. Um, we're going to go over like what's an addiction versus being dependent. One of those has to deal with negative effects and you just don't care. Is it the moral decay of society as we label it? We'll get into the opioid addiction. What's the cause of that? Is it doctors? Is it street drug style? And then we're going to go into like teenagers. You know, they rebel. What's the best way to handle when you know your kid's doing drugs, hanging out with the wrong crowd, those types of things? Do we punish? Do we build trust? Do we reach out with personal stories? Are we just rule with an iron fist? Uh, it's kind of a delicate balance, but we're going to take some time and, and walk through that. You know, what, what is the relationship to that behavior and the rest of your responsibilities in life? That's a key to think about. And then we're going to go over what is called purpose anxiety and how do you figure out your values and live to those values. And another fun question was, instead of why the addiction, we should start asking the question, why the pain? What is the protagonist, the pain that caused you to go into alcohol or drugs, etc. His company is Wide Wonder. If this doesn't intrigue you, they sold their house. They're in a converted bus with his two kids and wife, and they're traveling the country, teaming up with an eating disorder clinic in Denver. They've got 30 events that they're going to raise awareness so that people are not struggling silently, potentially committing suicide, or just going down this addiction path and not ever getting help when help is just around the corner if they reached out. So it's going to be a great episode. All the show notes can be found at a doctorsperspective.net slash 136. Let's go hashtag behind the curtain. Live from China and near the Lake George upstate New York area. Today on the show, we have an addiction recovery expert. He's got multiple businesses, but they're all sort of weaving together. I'll just list them out for you. Breakthrough Interventions, Family Recovery School, Sustainable Recovery, Launchpad, and now Wide Wonder. And all of this is like a digital format, which is really cool. I thought it was a brick and mortar, but it's not. So I'm really excited to see this style of practice going on. And here's, here's a quote. What I've discovered over the last 16 years is that sustainable recovery or discovery is rooted in both recognizing and healing our wounds, followed by deliberately pursuing and living our dreams. Please welcome Timothy Harrington. Hey, hello, China. <laughs> hey, hey, this is awesome. Hey, you ever get yourself quoted back to yourself very often? No. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> 
I, I was while you were reading that, I was like, I said that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I love it's even that. Italicized. I love it actually because it it really encapsulates. I'm having the chills because it's a cumulative experience of my own struggles with addiction and then getting into this field and uh, and the cumulative effect of all of that really gives me great pause and also great um, uh, gratefulness for everything I've been through and everything I've learned and all the teachers I've had. Very cool. Like, yeah. During our pre-chat, we went through some of the topics that I'm hoping they're covered today. Yeah. And I'm just hoping that we can get it all in there. You just got so much to start with. It's like sometimes trying to start out somewhere is yeah. the hardest part of an interview. <laughs> Which is why we ask, hey, why'd you pursue your profession? Yeah. And so if you could give us a little bit of that, the backstory, and then bridge it into all these businesses that are intertwined in digital for us. Yeah. So I had, uh, uh, as, as a kid, my uh, dad sort of disappeared when I was around five or six years old. And I remember being a kid standing at the screen door and each car that was coming was going to be my dad to come pick me up. And with each one that kept going, I felt this, as I've done a lot of work on myself subsequently, I felt this sense of loss and this sense of uh, despair and this sense of sadness that carried on through my life. And that led to um, a susceptibility to some adaptive or maladaptive way of coping with that, uh, what I would call an original wound. And I ended up having a relationship as our family dynamic was very much uh, about alcohol. It was a part of our lives. It was a part of our celebrations. It was a part of our uh, drowning our sorrows. And so I developed a relationship with uh, alcohol, um, one of the most destructive drugs on the planet, as well as cocaine for about 16 years. And uh, it was my drug of solution. I never had a drug problem. I think that's an important distinction. I did lead to ne negative consequences, but I always was able to sort of continue to show up. It was just that I was never able to get to my dreams because it, that relationship always sort of blocked it. And so where that led me was to treatment center. And then it led me to uh, opening a restaurant. And then that led me to more troubles with drugs and alcohol. And then that led me to working in a treatment center in Southern California in 2001. And since then, I just became very fascinated with not how to stop using drugs, but how to stay stopped. And that was my original business, weaving those in, sustainable recovery. So what for any one person is the recipe or the prescription for sustainable recovery or staying broken up from drugs um, in your life so that you can start to reach your goals and your dreams. And one thing led to another. I started doing interventions. I took trainings with people. And uh, I am a very curious person by nature. And so I read probably weekly anywhere between 50 to 75 articles um, on a range of things. And they all end up tying into how is it that I get to be and strong relationship with self and other people so I can be the most effective interventionist, uh, purpose coach, family advisor, all of those things. That has been my joy, has been this process of discovery, as I call it now, not recovery, um, of what is my purpose. And it is very clear to me that my purpose is to intervene on different systems so as to make them uh, as healthy as they possibly 
and so that they may support each other in a way that's based on uh, based on love, basically. And that's been the joy of my life. That's been the thing that continues to sustain me, <laughs> if you will. Yeah. Very good. So a follow-up to this, because I want to talk to people about what you're doing now, but I want to wait. You made a comment. You were like a functioning, air quote, addict. Yeah. You're doing drugs, but you're functioning. And I don't think we think of that typically. I think when we think no. of this, we think you're a bum, you're on the couch, yeah. you're, you're stealing from your mom. <laughs> that's kind of that's right. the picture we have in our head. Yeah. So what is that distinction between, you know, like, I guess the meth person who's, who's stealing from their mom versus someone who's mm -hmm. like, no, I'm a CEO. I make six figures and I happen to like my cocaine. And that might tie into the addicted versus dependent conversation that I hope we have. Yeah. Well, it's an important distinction because what we're talking about is a, uh, let's call it a media narrative and then a scientific or evidence-based narrative. Okay. So the, the evidence-based narrative is that there are approximately a quarter of a billion people right now on the planet using illicit drugs. Okay. And what the numbers are saying is that about 89% of those people, roughly, uh, use quote unquote non-problematically. In other words, they have a relationship that is not taking them to the point where they've lost jobs or relationships. It's Friday night at the club and I want to have fun. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it, it, and I think that's the narrative that gets suppressed because of years and years of stigma of drugs being, or drug use being immoral or bad or wrong or any number of ways of sort of separating out that activity um, as something that is, uh, we just can't support because it, what the narrative is, is it deteriorates the moral fabric of society. <laughs> right. Right. And, and if that was true, a quarter of a billion people would be doing a whole lot more damage than, than currently is happening. Um, we, we do tend to focus on the, uh, I want to say negative, but that's not even the right word. We focus on the, uh, dramatic or the extremes, as you mentioned, like, uh, because you don't know who you're going to be. Like you might be the person that just whew, way off the cliff. And if you would have just never charted it, because you got scared for some for some reason, some outside force told you to be scared of it. You would have never tried it, but now you did. Now your life's a wreck. So I can see that. I can see definitely see that argument as well. Oh yeah, for sure. And 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 the thing about it is, is that the narrative of the focus on the extreme examples or the acute examples directs the policy for the majority, and that's not that's not that doesn't help, right? Because right, we need a policy. We need a treatment approach that is in alignment with the facts. And the reason why that's important is because the dramatic version of the bum or the lazy person or the self-centered person or the person who's not trying hard enough or the one with moral decay or any number of ways of sort of uh, the overarching definition of somebody who's addicted doesn't help at all. And then everyone else gets lost. There's no program for somebody who, uh, who's all four, who still has two tires. There's only a program for somebody who's lost all four tires. And that's, right. that's why we continue to not get in front of addiction, right? Because 70% of people who have a substance abuse issue, and we don't use that word, substance use disorder uh, situation, are uh, working. They have jobs. And that's, that doesn't get a lot of press. It, in fact, 
it doesn't get hardly any press. There may be some uh, business articles in Forbes or Inc. or Fortune or something where they talk about how drugs are affecting the bottom line, right? Because they do. But there's no mention of the, the idea that 70% of people who are struggling with some sort of drug and it's having an effect on different dimensions of health all have jobs. 70% of them. I think of most musicians, Charlie Sheen comes to mind. <laughs> you know what I mean? They're holding down jobs. They're playing music. You wouldn't know they're high as a kite and their no. life's a wreck, some of them. Right. And, and it's, it's unfair to even use the word functioning because it's really about dimensions of health. Because a relation, again, if you have a relationship with a drug and there are, believe it or not, there are casual heroin users, including injectors. So this idea that wow. if you inject drugs, you're automatically done is just not true because most people can use drugs and not have get addicted. It, there are extenuating circumstances or exacerbating cir circumstances in a person's life, which we mentioned earlier about a person's life experience, including trauma, sexual abuse, any of the, any of the things that fit into adverse childhood experiences, neglect, abandonment, physical abuse, uh, verbal abuse, any kind of abuse. Um, all of those things have a correlation to developing a dependency or an addiction on drugs, rather, uh, as there is a, a correlation between diabetes and obesity. So those kinds of conversations, the context of the conversation are, is really what's going to help us get out in front of this, Justin. What's a dependent versus an addicted person? Because I think yeah. that you, you like that description. So let's give a good difference on those. Yeah, so a dependence would be somebody who, if, if they're uh, dependent on, say, an opioid for chronic pain, if they were to try to stop, they would have withdrawal symptoms. That's dependency. And, and addiction would be somebody who is um, having the same situation, a relationship with, a, with an opioid or, or alcohol or whatever, and when they would try to stop, they would have withdrawal. So there's the similarity between those two. However, addiction goes to the next level, which is persistent use of said drug, despite negative consequences. So the dependent person who's a chronic pain patient or a casual user or somebody who has, you know, a relationship long-term with any kind of drug, and they're still able to have their relationships are intact, they're, they still have a job, they, there's, the dimensions of health are not completely eroded, that would be dependency. The other is the persistent use, cravings, also the withdrawal potential if they stop, but they're doing it despite negative consequences like loss of job, relationships, some aspect of health, maybe liver disease, you know, any, anything like that. Mm. In this country, and in fact, we mentioned earlier in the pre-interview pre about how the DSM-5, in order to deal with this confusion between dependence and addiction, has dropped dependence from its definition of, of addiction. Wow. What did they replace it with? Nothing. They didn't. They just took it out, and it's just focusing on... The idea that the difference is persistent use despite negative consequences. Wow. All right. So you don't want that label if you didn't actually have to have it. Right. And nobody does. I mean, I think that's an important distinction, too. You may choose the drug, but you don't choose the addiction. Nobody does. Nobody at five yeah. years old goes, I hope I grow up to become addicted to fill in the blank. That's not the point. The point is, is that, again, a life of experience, adverse childhood experiences, some kind of trauma, and then early onset of use. If you, the earlier you use, the, the more likely you'll develop some sort of addiction. Yeah, our little brains aren't even is normally ready somebody to go. Even, yeah, that's right. Somebody likened the adolescent brain to uh, a, a really, really 
fine-tuned sports car with no brakes. <laughs> yeah. It's amazing that we're expected to do so much at a time when our brains are so fragile. Pick your career. Uh, don't get pregnant. Oh, don't do drugs. Oh. Don't drink alcohol. And you're like, wait, wait. All these things sound great. <laughs> a- absolutely. In fact, there's a doctor, Dr. Dan Siegel, who's written a lot of books about the teenage brain. He says, adolescence is the most important part of our lives. It's where we are figuring out our autonomy. We're figuring out what, who we want to be. We're experimenting with all these things. Uh, we're figuring out our boundaries, our moral compass, our worldviews, all that stuff. While at the same time, we have all of these outside forces, the people who used to be teenagers, giving us all kinds of heck. Like, they're, 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 <laughs> why are you so stupid? And you're making all these dumb decisions. And why are you acting this way? I get families calling me all the time saying, you know, my 16-year-old son, he's always isolated in his room. And he doesn't seem to want to spend very much time with me. I'm like, yeah, he's a 16-year-old boy. That's developmentally appropriate. <laughs> You know, (laughs) but somehow it's affecting them in a negative way. So can you help me fix this? And we're like, no, we're not going to fix that. That's where he's supposed to be. Right. Yeah. Too, because he's maybe smoking a little pot and they get freaked out and they get very nervous because, again, the media is telling them that's the gateway to heroin and he's going to die of a fentanyl overdose. They literally get there in like a split second. Right. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's my little angel. Yeah, we have to. Yeah, exactly. That's where all of a sudden the ideal is about to blow up and they'll do just about anything to prevent that, including getting hysterical and making some really bad decisions in terms of labeling him or putting him in some kind of long-term treatment program where he gets labeled as an addict or an alcoholic or any number of things that when you're an adolescent is not a helpful term in terms of a long-term prognosis for you know healthy awareness of who you are and what you're capable of. It can really, really hurt you. I heard it's a new thing. A gaming addiction. Now, this might be completely off topic for what we're doing. Okay. Um, but like gaming, you yeah. know, people playing video games all day long, they get addicted. Like China actually, they stopped some, one game was so popular, or a couple games, I think, well, it doesn't matter what they're called, but uh, yeah. they blocked, they, they made the company say, hey, they have to sign into something. They only get one or two hours a day. Right. They can't play during this time frame because it was just wrecking these kids. They just played so much. Yeah. And again, I think that's a really good point to bring up to the audience is that addiction is not about drugs, right? Because you can become addicted or depend or, or, or dependent on a lot of different things, right? It always is what's after that. Is it creating uh, trouble in your life or in your relationships? Are you not able to take care of yourself? Are you seeing, you know, very clear health markers going in the wrong direction? All of those things. And then, and then there's the majority of those kids who are doing just fine you know, and, and doing the same thing and playing maybe the same amount of times, but they're not having those other things. We need that distinction so that we don't lump everybody in together because it is ultimately about your relationship to these things. So when we raise our kids, we know we don't, we're not into restriction. You can't, you must, you have to, you're all of these very hard line, black and white approaches. What we want them to do is recognize the relationship to whatever it is, to technology, to food, to us, to other people, to their peers, to school, whatever that might be, so that they can discover their own agency or their own insight rather than me having to direct or choose that insight for them based on my own fears. Does that make sense? Yeah, but how do you determine, because you know you're a parent, so how do you determine like what you're doing right now is a healthy relationship to video games versus you're turning the corner, you're on the cusp, and I need to guide you. How do you figure that out? 
Well, because there'll be certain things they start to neglect food, other activities. So there's no balance. There's no, there's no, there's no integration, right? It's just Mm. focus in one area and that can be thought. That can be what they talk about all the time. So the idea is, yeah, I respect that that is a compelling thing for you. However, in order for this to not go in a direction where you could be, where it could potentially affect other areas of your life in a negative way, we need to look at the whole. We need to step back and look at the big picture of what it is to be a human on this earth. And we get to engage in lots of different activities. We get to be inside, we get to be outside. We get to be up, we get to be down. We get to be sick, we get to be healthy. We get to be positive, we get to be negative. So we really teach them about the wholeness of life and the experience being both and, not just either or. We tend to very much focus in a black and white way, especially when things scare us as parents, right? We really get black and white real quick, and we want resolution in a way that's not genuine to one's development, to one's own development of agency. So in other words, when I would coach a parent around somebody who's struggling with some kind of addiction, I would say, don't give advice. Tell this person that you want to help them help themselves. Tell them that you're very interested in developing and evolving from an adult-child relationship into an adult-adult relationship, because I know that whatever you're being challenged with is something that you can handle. It's just that you need a little bit of guidance and support and love to get there. And that's different than go to your room, stop that restriction, 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 all extreme. Uh, I don't care about your agency. I don't care that you have insights. I don't, I don't care about that because I'm driven by fear. And I'm afraid this is going to all go in a really bad direction. In other words, I have this outlook, this future outlook that is all negative. And so I'll do whatever I have to in the moment <laughs> right. to arrest the situation, including damaging the relationship and maybe even causing long-term damage in terms of that person's own ability to make decisions on their own in their own favor. Is there a, a solid tip or two? I guess we kind of went into to, to children because that's sort of like a role. Yeah. It could also be a spouse or a brother or whatever. That's right. But something that you're dependent, you're not addicted, you're dependent, you enjoy yep. it. Yeah. But your family finds out, somebody finds out that you're doing it and they're like, no, you should not be doing heroin ever. Right. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. So they're like, I want you to change. I want you to quit this. And the other guy's like, for what? Because my Friday nights are like legit awesome and I'm not hurting anybody. That's right. You know, like, yeah. how do you get, you know, they don't want to change. I guess that's the point. They don't yeah. want to change. You want them to change. Is there any help for that? Is there anything you can do about that? If you're the parent and you're the one that wants this other person to change, I always tell parents, I'm like, recognizing your own history, because this is where we're alike, not different, where there was something in your life that somebody didn't approve of, that wanted you to be different, act a different way, stop doing that, do this, any sort of outside influence by somebody who has an obviously vested interest in you and love for you and concern, that's all great. But this is about how you love and care for somebody that's respectful of free will and self-determination. Does that make sense? Yeah. So, and so what we can do in this power struggle when, we're, when we think we're in a hierarchical relationship because we're the parent and they're the child, we tend to inject our value system into them and that we think that that's kind of what we're supposed to do. However, it is my belief that we're not the heroes in our kid's journey. They are. And so we get to be more of a steward or more of a shepherd or more of a custodian of that process as opposed to somebody who controls it. Because what I can tell you is that probably the most prevalent addiction in society is our addiction to control, particularly around emotions and relationships. And that is where we uh, force our will or our opinion or our value system 
in the direction of people that were concerned about in terms of their future. And what I can tell about that from a personal standpoint around my own struggles with addiction is that we focus around symptoms and behavior and not what's driving the behavior. And so the person, the family, like I mentioned earlier, that calls and said, my 16-year-old doesn't like me, <laughs> I'd say, well, there's a particular reason for that. There is a, there's a process that we go through as human beings. In fact, you went through the same process, how soon we forget, right? So the idea yeah. is to remind ourselves of what it is like to be an adolescent and to make the dumb choices that we're supposed to do, because that's what directs us towards our worldview and helps us to develop our own moral compass and to make decisions better at some point based on making bad ones. And we need to respect that, even if it's at the choice that we so disagree with, to your point about heroin, we get to give that up as something that we um, impress upon them as the wrong thing to do. And just let them know that if anything ever goes sideways with that relationship, that you can count on us and we'll be there for you. What that does, and that's what I do with my kids. I want them... Oh, that's hard. It's totally hard. There's no question. But... The hard thing and the right thing are often the same thing, right? So the uh, idea, right? The idea is that I get to, as the leader of the family or the person who is stewarding this process of family growth, is I get to be the one who expands my emotional bandwidth to become the kind of support for my kids that allows them to trust me. So if they do get in hot water and they do get in trouble, that there's a, there is a straight line to me because they trust me. Okay. So that's obviously a controversial answer. I'm sure people gonna be listening to this and be like, totally disagree. Yeah. But that's okay. We're not worried about that opinion. We're getting your opinion today. And that's what we're interviewing. Yeah. And tough love is really one of those things that, again, is, has been anecdotal and cliche around these issues that, you know, tough love, tough love. And there's just no science. There's no evidence that that is huh. the most effective way to get through. And I, we, I understand and you understand from, from, a, from a human level why we go there because it's fear. Yeah. It's just fear, and, and straight up, that makes perfect sense. So we, 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 we totally honor that. Now, peers. Peer pressure is a big deal. Yeah. Uh, they say people who come out of prison, where are they going to go back to? Well, probably where they came from. And if they came from an area that had a lot of those issues, they're going to go right back into it. And so what, what's the chance that they're going to get out of it? And then the same thing, you have school. You know, parents typically want to approve of your friends. And at some point, that probably <laughs> goes haywire. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, yeah. I remember... I was hanging out with kids and, and, you know, they were my friends for like ever and they started getting into more drugs and I was like, you know what? I'm on the college track, guys. Mm -hmm. I just sort of stopped hanging out with them as much and started hanging out with this other crowd, the smarter yeah. crowd, the people that had those kind of the same ambitions as I did and uh, didn't really look back, but it was a weird thing. Like, you know, they are where they are now and we're where we are. And uh, I don't think a lot of, I don't know. I don't know how often that is that somebody in high school would do something like that. Like it's hard to, to break away. Yeah. Peer pressure is, it's real. Peer pressure is real. It's a part of this adolescent piece, right? Where, yeah. where you're sus, where you are um, susceptible to great influence, right? And in all different kinds of ways, in a positive way, you know, in a, in a, in a challenge way, in a, in a successful way where it goes both ways. When I tell parents about this whole idea, because inevitably in most conversations over the last 17 years I've had with parents, inevitably they say something like, and then he got involved with the wrong crowd. <laughs> yeah. Right? And I'm like, this other crowd he used to hang out with don't do drugs, and right. now he's doing drugs. Right. And so it's the wrong crowd. And I say, okay, well, that's one way to look at it. But here, let me give you another empowering way to look at it. In the home front, 
there's a lot of blame, shame, judgment. There's a lot of control. There's a lot of things that are going on that are the antithesis of what's going on in their peer group. They're not getting judged. They're not getting blamed. They're not getting shamed. They're not getting controlled. They're actually being respected. They're being loved. They're being, you know, uh, people are holding the space. They don't, nobody's getting chastised or getting, uh, uh, you know, lectured. You know what I mean? So you have this dichotomy, right? You have the place that's your home space, and then you have the peer space. And those are always going to be different. But the chance for dealing with somebody who may be going in the wrong direction is not to continue to tell them they're with the wrong people, but to be to develop the same characteristics of the peer group, the basic values of the peer group, which is non-judgmental, non-shaming, and non-blaming, and no uh, control. You see what I'm saying? They feel home there. Yeah, yeah, they accepted me for who I am. I'm a yes. At the very time, that's what they want, while the family is doing the opposite. Right? Yeah. They think that's their role. Well. I'm here to tell you the new narrative is to learn the skill of how to love and care for somebody who's going through adolescence because that's a particular challenge. And then if you throw on top of that mental illness or addiction, now you really have to be specialized in how you communicate and love and care for somebody because you can end up because you're so influential and will remain the most influential person in that kid's life. You can send them in the wrong direction unintentionally. You know, I guess my parents did something right. <laughs> I got great parents. And, and again, a lot of people don't, don't do necessarily the wrong thing. They learn as they go along and they adapt. But when you're confronted with something that's very foreign and very scary, like addiction or mental illness, you, you end up grasping the trial. You freak out. You, you freak out. And, and a lot of what I say to parents when I first start working with them, it's very important. And this is what I hope if anybody takes anything away, if you're a family member who's got somebody struggling, is that the only perfect parent are the ones who don't have kids yet. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so let's, let's, let's start at the base of like, you have the most important job with the least amount of training, okay? That's, that's important to know. And it's important to know that there's also a lot of help out there to help you get on track in a way where you can remind your child of how you're the same and not continue to drive a wedge. And so when I coach families, mothers mostly, it's about building bridges and connecting around where we're very similar, which is those core emotional things, fear, anger, you know, any of those things we can get down to that are base where we can say, I know what it feels like to be scared. I know what it feels like to be bullied. I know whatever it is that the kid is going through, where we build a bridge across where all of a sudden we're humanizing ourselves and we're making it easy for that person to trust us because this is the time when that is the most important element. Not that they do the right thing, but that they trust you when the things are going the wrong direction. When they can know that there's a clear, unencumbered, (laughs) non-friction walk to you, that's what we want to try to do as parents. Does that make sense? It does, because I'm thinking, teenagers, you think your parents are dumb or they're they're so old. And then in reality, you're like, "Mm, no, I still remember being 16 or 18 or whatever. And so, like you said, if you can relate, they may not want to hear it. But it's like, no, we, we had the same thing. And like, you know, even in the Bible, they talk about different stories and they're a little bit yeah. different. But you're like, no, the core underlining concern, the issue that these people were having, we still have that today. It just looked oh, differently. It, it you more lambs and sheep in it. Yeah. yeah, that's right. That's right. Interesting. That's right. Yeah. Now, you made a comment. Or not, you didn't make a comment, but on your, your website and different things. Yeah. Um, a goal is replacing anxiety, fear with purpose. 
Yes. And discovering how this pain is masking the emotions or whatever that we're running from. Elaborate a little bit on those two things. Yeah. So there's a real study out there of uh, a thing called purpose anxiety. And we tend to live in a society where there's a lot of pressure on being quote unquote successful, you know, going to college, getting a job, getting a good job, you know, the sort of the standard way of going through life. Well, there's a lot of kids out there who are confronted with this conflict in value systems, in their family systems, where you have a family whose highest value is college. And this kid is like, no, I don't want to go to college. I don't like school. It's not my thing. And so we've started this power struggle. So what, what I mentioned to you earlier, I think in the pre-interview was about everything that underlies what I do is, is values. And, and not values are socially acceptable ways of behaving like integrity and honesty, because those are things that we fall in and out of doing perfectly or right. You know, that's just the right. experience. So I'm not talking about those things. And, and most of those things aren't your ideas anyway. They come from society. It's about, you know, how, what our norms are. So what I'm talking about when I'm talking about values is what I love to do, choose to do, and desire to do very clearly. And that's an action. That's things that I actually do. What I think about, what I spend time doing, what I spend my money on, very tangible things that I'm doing in my life become what my values are. Okay. And so what that can do when you develop an intimate relationship with those things is it lowers your anxiety. So as you go closer to the truth of who you are and what you spend time doing, thinking about spending your money on, that's when you're out of the dissonance or the misalignment between what you think society wants you to do or what your parents want you to do or what your peers want you to do and what you want to do. And you mentioned that earlier. You left a peer group and went to another one. The reason you did that is because you recognized a very distinct conflict in your value system. Wow. That value system you had outgrown with that other peer group and you went to another one that was more in alignment with your value system. And you thrived, right? Are people scared to do that? Yes, absolutely. Jet, absolutely. I would suggest that 80% of people right now are going to jobs or in relationships or doing things that are not in total alignment with what they love to do, choose to do, and desire to do. And that in and of itself causes dis-ease or some idea of being not quite right or being out of alignment, right? It's like driving a car that's out of alignment. You, you, at some point, you can't stand it. You got to get it fixed. You can't, that wheel moving back and forth and the, it going, pulling to the left, you're like, I'm going to fix this. I finally, I'm going to take it and get an alignment. Well, similar things happen with people, hopefully at some point where they're like, I'm out of alignment. I don't want to be a lawyer. You know what I mean? I just met a right. guy who had been a, who had been a, uh, who'd been a lawyer in finance. He was 54 years old and he quit his job to become a yoga teacher at 54. So that's an extreme example, but there are a lot of people who are grappling with this idea of living their high values or just talking about their high values, which would make them fantasy high values. And I'll give you an example of that. When I was working with a father who was a high-powered executive who was struggling with a son of addiction, when I was talking to him and I was talking about, uh, he was telling me the story about his frustration with his son and this, that, and the other thing. And I said, well, what I eventually get to and a lot of times later is the value system. And I just wanted to ask you, based on your story, what do you think is your highest value? And he said, well, it's definitely family. And I said, well, yeah, that makes sense to an extent because you're on the phone with me. But you also said to me in your, in your story that you work about 90 hours a week, sometimes more than that. And I said, yeah. is that not in conflict with your high value of family? How much time can you really spend? And 
is it is the kind of quality time you want. And he got really angry with me. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't call you to talk about me. <laughs> right. That's exactly right. And I said, well, it's important. And I think you realize this. And he was totally smart enough to realize it was just tough for it to become a reality for him that he was out of alignment with his, with his value system. He was, he had a fantasy high value of family, but a real high value of work. And that conflict caused him great frustration and great or providing pro- financially for his family for some reason was how he's like this is how i show this my family show. blah 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 right and his kids like no i need time kids want time they don't want your money per se right and ultimately we pass down those values that's part of the idea of how generationally we continue to do the same things over again in our family systems we talk the same way we pass down the same cliches we, we pass down you know the same stuff that's part of what's great about family but the other part of the other side of that is that what's working and what's not working. And, then I, and, and that's an important thing. What's important about that is that when I work with families, Justin, I tell them that what they're confronted with is not all of this negativity, although that's part of it, or this fear, but it's also being able to look at this in a way that says this is an opportunity of a lifetime for us to reimagine and repurpose our family system in a way that's as healthy as it's ever been going forward. We have an opportunity collectively to come back together because the addiction blew everything apart. And so to re-put it back together in a way that is more healthy than it was before the addiction came along is really a big part of the opportunity that I try to help people realize when I'm dealing with addiction or mental illness in the family. I had heard of this thing, and not everybody's going to agree with this, but they call it generational sin. And it's not like you, uh, your, your father did this and now you're cursed or anything like that. It's just more of the idea of, if your beat or if your grandfather beat your dad, your dad might beat you, and you might be the one that finally changes it. But they said it takes around three generations to like make a make a change. Like you're still gonna feel your grandfather's potentially your great grandfather's physical abuse. You're probably still gonna feel that if your parents didn't do a drastic change so that it doesn't happen. Now I don't know if that's true or not. But that's just kind of something I had heard. Yeah, that's true. In fact, the study of intergenerational trauma is one of the big advances that is happening in terms of how we see a person, right? So a person comes to me and presents with addiction. And so the behavior and symptoms of that are this. What we can, what we can surmise is that we could say, instead of why the addiction, we could say, so tell me about the pain. Mm. Let me give you an example of that. When I talk to a family now that I know what I know about what you just talked about, intergenerational trauma, as well as trauma that's happened to this person in the, in the recent past, is that the tie-in to addiction is, like I said earlier, as obesity is to diabetes. And so when I'll say to a family or a mother, I'll say, just tell me, can you just tell me about his pain? And they'll be like, well, what do you mean pain? I'm like, well, you know, has there been uh, a death in the family? Has he lost a grandparent, somebody close to him? Uh, has there been a divorce? Did you move a lot? Does he have a traumatic brain injury? This is really tied into the lack of emotional self-regulation, which can lead to... Got bullied. Got bullied, absolutely. Are they having uh, uh, challenges with sexual identity? Any number of things can create a very powerful foundation that can lead somebody to uh, using drugs as a way to cope right? As a, as a coping mechanism. So that's something that is always surprising to me that they haven't tied that in. 
even if they've been through 10 treatments already. Uh, I'm always shocked about that. And, and, and yeah, that seems more pretty often basic. Than, it seems pretty basic, but unfortunately in the behavioral health space, it's still, we're still lacking in leading with the question of why the pain instead of why the addiction and getting to the cause and the conditions and what I call the protagonist in any individual story that leads them to this very intense relationship with some kind of drug or some kind of behavior. It could be sex, gambling, drugs. Uh, there's any number of ways that people can engage in a relationship that can lead to negative consequences through persistent use. And that's really important for the bigger picture in terms of how we go forward to treat, you know? I don't know enough about this part of it, but when you're trained, do do psychology people always expect this is going to take a while? <laughs> like, is there ever like a, you know what I mean? Like, oh, yes, you're probably going to be at least a 15 month situation once a week. You know, and it's not like that. You know, that's just kind yeah. of yeah. A, a horrible way to talk about it. But are they ever like, nah, man, I, I want you for a month. It's going to be intense. And we should really have made some progress. It shouldn't take six months or eight months. I mean, how does that play into some of this? I didn't get to the deeper level quick enough. Yeah. And I think that goes down to sort of individual personality as well as experience that a therapist brings to the, the relationship. Because that's all going to Okay. I would suggest that people get into psychotherapy and therapy and becoming those as a profession a lot of times because of their own experience with mental illness and things in their family going back generations. Oftentimes, there is a catastrophe that leads a person to some sort of relationship with a vocation or leads them down the path of having an uh, unhealthy relationship, if you will, with drugs or alcohol. It is often exacerbated by some sort of catastrophe in the family, some sort of event. That's the reason why I ask. Give me the precipitating event. What was the big upheaval? What was, tell me about the history of your family in terms of how it dealt with trauma. Let's talk about that because the expectation has to be in congruence with the long term of what that person went through and what experiences they had that led them to this acute situation around some addiction. And if we don't do that, then we're going to focus on um, the smaller picture rather than the big picture. And if we do that, more than likely, we won't have the sustainable change that we're looking for. So when somebody relapses, as we call it, um, I call it just recurring uh, resumption of use or resumption of activity. But for, for these purposes, relapse is what people understand is when that happens, it's normally because we haven't dealt with that protagonist in a way where they actually can avoid that sort of relationship. They don't go back to that relationship. You know, when you haven't dealt with it, more than likely in order to deal with the pain, with the frustration, with the sadness, with the despair, you go back to what you know. That works very efficiently. And yeah. it, just, it just makes sense to that person. It doesn't make sense if you're the outside looking in, but if you're that person, it makes perfect sense. Nobody's judging you because you ate two pints of ice cream and a Big Mac. <laughs> <laughs> when, you know, yeah, that was really bad. Like you ingested 5,000 calories in one night. I mean, there's just not as bad of a stigma as, oh, you, you shot up with heroin today. That's right. Yeah, the stigma is, is so huge. And I'm glad you said that because drug use is the most stigmatized activity on planet Earth. It doesn't matter what culture you're from, what part of the world you're from. In fact, it's worse in some places where... They'll kill you for it. Yep, yep. Some countries. I think it was Singapore. Or Getting off the airplane, they're like, look, man, it, you better do something with it because capital punishment. It ain't prison. 
Yeah, and that's cha- and that's actually changing. Actually, it's, it's kind of interesting. Uh, there was a global commission on on drugs put out. It's regularly put out, and uh, recently we've seen some advances in cultures that have been very archaic, including what you were talking about. They're starting to change their perspective in terms of how they're they're going from criminalizing to de- decriminalization to a healthcare model, and and like. Like that, like they've literally changed it overnight. And I think the first place, if I'm if if I'm correct, people can look this up. But I think it was Myanmar has completely changed, and that was a culture that was the extreme. I mean, totally like you said, like we don't mess around. You're done. Bye bye. You know. And now they're literally saying that's not been working. We're going to stop doing that, and we're going to treat it as a health issue across the board. Huh. Impressive. And, and if and if something like that can do that, we can do that. And that's my hope. My hope long term is that we can stop punishing people where we can stop exacerbating or increasing suffering for somebody who's already suffering as a way to fix it. <laughs> I mean, it's kind of yeah. completely illogical, but that's, you know, that's how we're doing it. We're, we're, we're punishing somebody for, for doing something that, you know, they haven't chosen. They don't want to be addicted. They don't want to live on the streets. They don't want to live in a, in a drug camp. They they want to be seen. They want to be heard. They want to be respected. They want to be loved. You know, and that bridges quite well to the opioid epidemic. Yeah, 131 people are dying a day. I just did a mini-sode. Well, I just recorded it. That's going to be episode, I think, 41. So anyway, uh, I don't think it, it's, it's a weird thing. You go in, you had a, a tummy ache or you had a tooth that bothered you. They give you something that's only supposed to be in for like three or four days. Maybe you had an unhealthy relationship with alcohol a little bit. You found this opioid. Whoa, this is amazing. And you just, you don't stop. Other people, I think, maybe they had some suppressed stuff that they didn't deal with. They got on it and they're like, wow, a burden has been lifted off to the races on opioids. And I'm guessing there's still people who are like, never had an issue, never thought I had an issue, but I got on it and I like it. And I just didn't get off of it. And then other people, again, I guess that's category four or five here. If I'm not on it, my back pain is unbearable. And I wish I can get off of it, but I can't get off of it. But if it affects me negatively and I might die in the next three years, but this back pain isn't going to get any better either. Maybe they haven't gone through the approaches. Uh, That's part of the episode as well. So, so many angles that you could tackle there. Mm -hmm. Give us your thoughts. So my thoughts are, again, uh, looking at the big picture and pulling back from the painting to get the full view of the artist's work. <laughs> and the artist's work would be a person's life experience. And you mentioned some things that definitely uh, play into a reason why somebody would continue or why somebody would not continue. The truth of it is, and the facts and the evidence of this epidemic is that the majority of people are acquiring opioids in a non-pharmacological way or a relationship with a doctor who go on to be addicted. To start with? Yes. Oh, okay. That's, that's a confusion because the narrative... Yeah, they make it sound like it's the doctor's fault. Exactly. And that's, again, our tendency to look for a villain without looking at the ah. picture. Right? We need longitude here. We need to back up. We need to look at the big picture. If we don't, then we'll continue to focus on areas that take us away from the multifactorial reasons why anyone develops some sort of addiction. And if we don't do that, then we're going to continue to miss the point. And so what we need to recognize is that if you take a hospital 
which is treating pain, right? A lot of pain. If you go to a hospital, there's a lot of people in there who got pain. You have surgery, you're going to come out with pain. That's right. If every one of those people, 100% of them, got addicted because they were getting pain meds, I would be the first one to recognize that it's the drug that's the problem. But it's simply not the case. The addiction rate for somebody who has a legitimate prescription is so low that it's almost inconsequential. And that's that's the confusion. The confusion is we throw on words or phrases like 76 billion pills. Well, yeah, that's what was put into circulation, but we didn't take 76 billion pills. <laughs> so it's not like a chicken or an egg. It's not like they had it at a street party versus... Well, no, they got it legitimately and it turned into a problem. They wouldn't get a, a script filled. So now they're going to a street party to get it. Right. And, and that's a problem because there should be, it should be as easy to get the treatment for some addiction as it is to get the actual pill itself. Do you know what I mean? It should be equal. Yeah, we don't pay for maintenance. No. We, no maintenance in mental health. No prevention in mental health. No. It's, oh, you're schizophrenic and you're going crazy? Yeah. By now, we'll do something for you. Exactly. That's that whole point earlier about all four wheels have to fall off before we can help you. Yeah. We don't help you if you're riding on three wheels. We're like, come back to us when they are all off. It's, it's just... Yeah. Get a job and then you can buy your meds. Yeah. It's backwards. It's not looking again at the whole picture. It's looking at very small little slivers of it and making grand conclusions based on those narrow investigations. And so... Again, that would be focusing on the behavior and symptoms instead of the longitudinal existence of a human being and how they came to this position of being in a very negative, a challenging relationship with a drug. It's just disingenuous for us to say that it's any one person's fault or any one instance's fault. It's a, it's a combination lock, not a skeleton key issue. And so we need to not blame doctors. We don't need to blame Purdue. As the one villain, we all get to take some sort of responsibility and look at it from a multifactorial point of view so that we can make sure that we address everything instead of just one thing. And then it becomes a game of whack-a-mole where we focus on this, this is the problem. Then why are we here again? If that was the problem, how come we haven't fixed it? If drugs are the problem, how come a trillion dollars on the war on drugs? How come we're still where we are? Why do we keep doing the same thing over again, expecting a different result? Why do we do that? Whew. Yeah. And that gets super political, too. I mean, I can think of... Super political. Super political there. And I can see the same scenario play out in, like, the border and, you know, abortion clinics. And, you know, all these things, it's not it's like, just, it's not as easy no. as we try to make it out to be. Right. Well, if you're controlling the narrative, it makes sense that they're motivated to make it so cut and dry. Because... That's how yeah, you get attention. Yeah. Polarization is going to drive more people, more views, more eyeballs, you know, more drama, right? And that's yeah. really yeah. economy. That's an economy. And that's really sad when mistakes are as high as they are around these issues. We need more responsibility in journalism. And in fact, there's a whole there's a whole cottage industry that teaches media how to report on these things. But right. they don't they don't use it. Because it, because if it did, <laughs> it probably wouldn't be as quote unquote successful, you know. Got some bills to pay. <laughs> yeah, I get that, but there is another way, and I think the other way would be to be committed to, from a media standpoint, to to tying it into not the idea of right and wrong, but the idea of uh, uh, where we are from a values point of view. That's the reason why I so love the idea of the values approach. 
because underneath all of the polarization is so much commonality. Well, Tim, we have got to switch gears. I think this is an amazing like interview, in my opinion. Uh, lots of great knowledge, lots of way to make you think about addiction and, and, and recovery and what's going on and going behind the scenes. So loving it. But let's switch gears a little bit because you actually have this thing called Wide Wonder. You're sitting in an old bus that's been converted. I see some beautiful trees outside. The lighting's changing all the time on you. So people, people are going to be like, wait, what are you talking about, Justin? So you're, you're traveling the nation. That's right. What's that about? And your website's great. So this is the, the bridge to what are you doing in general? And as far as marketing, so you don't have a brick and mortar. You're having to support yourself. We're all business people. We need to survive. That's right. We need to make money. We want to thrive. So what's going on? What's your mission? And um, maybe some marketing tips that you're doing that's helping. Yeah. So we uh, we did this company called <clears throat> excuse me called Wide Wonder, which is about zero stigma. That's our goal. We wanted a moonshot. We took that from the UK. They have an initiative called Zero Suicide, and I thought that's what we need to get people fired up. Is not just reduction or curbing or slowing down. I was like, that's not my personality. I'm going for zero stigma because the stakes are high. So I love that approach. So that's our goal. We sold our house. We downsized. We put our kids in homeschool and we are 100% committed to the goal of zero stigma or raising awareness around how stigma is still the number one block for people to reach out for help and to get help. Uh, to admit to themselves, to admit to their closest relatives and friends and about what they're going through, to take the silence and to make it create a voice around this so that we can normalize what it is to have a, an issue of mental illness, mental injury, emotional illness, whatever you want to call it, something that is help, having somebody struggle in silence and not get help. We want to change that narrative to where we equate physical challenge with mental challenge. Same thing. We don't need to separate. They're the same. We all have mental health. We all have physical health. Let's make it the same. If somebody has a broken arm, you go get it fixed. If somebody has a broken brain, you go get it fixed. That's the legacy for our children's generation. That's We don't want them to struggle in silence. That's part of this legacy. Wide wonder is to have generations, our kids included, to look at this in a way that is positive and empowering, not stigmatizing, not marginalizing, not so they go into isolation and suffer in silence. No more of that. We're, we're calling it out. That's, that's wide wonder. Wide wonder is compassion, empathy. It's decriminalization of all drugs. It is leading with uh, curiosity, not judgment, asking questions, not giving direction, not giving advice, connecting with people. Wide wonder is connection is the currency of wellness. That's sort of become our theme. People will heal when they feel compassion. People will stop isolating when they feel safe. So in any system, that's what we're trying to remind people. Stop punishing and start leading with compassion. And so we've been able to do this, sell our house, travel the country. We're in Lake George, as you mentioned earlier, a beautiful area in upstate New York. And we've been able to do this trip because we sponsored, we co-sponsored with a company called Eating Recovery Center out of Denver, Colorado. They believed in our mission. They know how important the reduction or elimination of stigma is to not only somebody seeking help, but staying and sustaining that help. And so we partnered with them. We were doing 30 events around this country where we're speaking to different organizations. 
about stigma. And it's just been phenomenal, both on a personal and a professional level. <laughs> the amount of change that has happened to us as a family has been phenomenal. We are closer than we've ever been. We are communicating in a way we never have before because of this close proximity and this, this journey of travel. And we are also meeting people who are doing incredible work out there. We're obviously not the only ones who, are, uh, who have the goal of reducing or eliminating stigma. And we've met these people and they've inspired us. We have met people who are at ground zero as far as overdose, and they are the ones who are leading us in a progressive way in order to, uh, for the deaths of people who have died, for people who have died of overdose and the grief left in its wake. So those lives were not lived in vain and they have, they weren't, they didn't die in vain. And so every day, Justin, I am motivated by the people who we have already lost and the grief in its wake. To never, ever stop from now on, even when the bus, you know, docks later on this year, to continue with this mission of zero stigma, because it is a killer. And that's why we're talking today. We're, we're on our way. Now, I'm going to ask this question, and it's a serious question, but it's probably something that people are like, how can you ask that? <laughs> and this is, this, why do we care if somebody commits suicide? You can do anything you want. Yeah. You can be the most drug addicted guy on the street in California living in a tent. Why can't we just let somebody kill themselves if they want to? Like, why is that a crime? Why can't we just let them go? What's the problem? Yeah, no. And, and, and that's real question. Yeah, it is a real question. And that really goes to sort of an emotional maturity that goes for, from a social maturity where we understand, again, the bigger picture. We've talked a lot about this. And so when I coach people, I am the first person to talk about how we get to recognize what we have control of and what we don't. This is a really important part of emotional growth as an individual and as a system. And so what I tell them is that we're here to express our love of people, places, and things without control. We give it freely. It's unconditional. There's no conditions on my love to my kids, to my wife, to this, to this community, to this world that I live in. And that was a real long journey for me. Because I have certain ideas of the way things should be done. <laughs> right, and, I bet. <laughs> this, this is getting over that so that I can be an agent of compassion and empathy and love. Because that ultimately is what is going to enrich my relationship regardless of the outcome of what the other person does. What I tell families, what I tell mothers is right now, when we get off this phone, go and love your loved one up. Love them like you've never loved them. Love them so they feel free. Don't love them so they feel constrained. Don't love them so they feel like they've done the wrong thing. Don't love them with a little hint of judgment. Love them so they feel free. Love them the way that, like the five love languages? Yes. Find out what that is. Love them the way that they would actually feel loved? That's right. We, that's interesting you mentioned that because we just did that as a couple, my wife and I. <laughs> yeah? yeah? What are you? Uh, I am, so I appreciate... And, I, and I'm losing the language, the love language implicit or explicitly, but I like to be recognized for my, what I do. Like I like appreciation, right? And so we're trying to literally on the bus, it's been part of our mental fitness or emotional fitness is to love each other in that way. And it's so hard if the other person's like, I want to get you a gift. You're like, I don't want your gift. Just tell me you appreciate me. That's right. That's exactly right. <laughs> Thanks for pumping the gas. Right. <laughs> Thanks for checking the air pressure. <laughs> exactly. And boy, what a revelation that was to have those data points or recognize those languages. Because that really, really helps with us to build connection. 
because that's what all of us want. That's what we want. I want to be seen. I want to be heard. I want to be loved in a way that makes me feel free. Not like there's some caveat. Like, I'm going to meet you where you are, Justin, as long as you do blah, 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 blah. Yeah. Yeah. And we're trying to get away with, from that, from a parent's perspective, from a spouse perspective, a relationship perspective, and then carrying that narrative in the way that we treat mental illness and addiction. I'm trying to semi-convince my, my wife one day when we settle down. Because my next stage, uh, China, I think, is about done. We've been here almost five years. Wow. End of the year, we're, we're, we're checking out. Talk about just changing uh, our life again and with a new kid. But um, the uh, tiny home, a revolution. Yes. I love it. When I see shipping containers ride by or something, oh, I'm like, I love hey, baby, shipping containers. She's like, that's our future house. She's like, please, just can you? I'm like, I didn't say one. We could have four. I'm we could have a full-size way. house made yeah. of shipping containers. Yeah, yeah. But uh, but I love it. I just love that idea. I don't need tiny, but I mean, we're, I, I'm a big, I'm a frugal person. I'm living in China. You learn like what you need and what you don't need. Hey. It's a really cool way to downsize. Obviously, you did it. You're living in a converted bus. Yep. And you have at least one kid. How many kids do you have? Two daughters, 11 and 13. Wow. So you got two preteens <laughs> in a bus yep. driving around the country for this year. What is, how are y'all doing it? What's the survival mechanism here? So the survival mechanism is the recognition of how important it is to attune to other people's emotions. And attunement means this. It means I see you're struggling and I'm going to hold the space for you to go through that. And I honor the struggle you're going through. And that's just part of life. And your emotions are valuable. And it's all really the opposite of the way that I was raised. We were very much about control, control of emotions, control of everything in any way that we could, control of our destiny, our success. Very, very, very specific about what it was to be, you know, in my family was very much around not being attuned to emotions, but to get through them as quickly as possible and move on. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So in our family, we made a very conscious choice to be emotionally intelligent and and recognizing that emotions are only visitors. They have expiration dates, but they're very, they're, they're very important messenger in that we get to experience them because that's the human experience. And to deny that causes suffering. And so we're very much about attuning to our own emotions and others. And that's made all the difference in the world. And when you live in close proximity, you're talking about emotions bouncing off of each other very quickly and very efficiently. So there's nowhere to hide. Nowhere to hide. Very. It required us to raise our game to a level we had never done before. And we're, like I said earlier, we're as close as we've ever been. And we couldn't be happier with, with our own emotional fitness. We're still going to have challenges. We're in this, we're in what we call hump day right now, Justin, which means we're halfway through the trip. And so oh, okay. we're trying to get over the hump. And so we're recognizing our struggle. We're telling each other, you know, we're struggling. This is hump day. And we, we need each other to get through that so that we get to the other side of the, the middle of this trip and start on the downside, not the downside, but the, the, the end of the trip as we make our way back to California. Well, being at the lake probably doesn't hurt. No, nature is a real healer. It really helps. What is one thing that you can do that you're doing uh, to keep the love alive and feel connected? Yeah, well, again, it goes back to emotional attunement. It goes back to the recognition of how important interdependence is versus codependence, meaning that there's something that I think that Robin needs to give me 
that I can't give myself. That would be codependence. And so what we're recognizing and how important our inner interdependence means, which is where the, what I call, we each have a hula hoop around us. Inside the hula hoop, is, hula hoop is what we can control and what outside is what we can't control. And I use that with families. Where the hula hoop of Robin and I come together and overlap, that's our intradependence or interdependence, how we come together and work really well together, bring our differences together to support each other in the process. We were just talking about this last night, how important differences are all across the board. Our differences are remarkable and should be celebrated, not, not a reason for us to get more polarized, but to help us realize that that diversity is what makes us so strong. Agreed. Pretty much last question here. Yeah. Favorite book, podcast, phone apps. It could be fun or they could be serious. Uh, what you got for us? So it's, it's, it's uh, to this trip, we, uh, we use Yelp a lot because we're looking for places to eat. We're looking for places to shop and all that. Because of, so Yelp is huge and it's really accurate. So that's a big one. Another one is uh, mindfulness app, uh, Headspace. Uh, any kind of app that deals with meditation is really important to get your private space. When you don't have a lot of space to escape, you put headphones on and you can get your space that way because space is important. Autonomy is important. So that's a big one. Books. There's a great book called Beyond Addiction where science and kindness help people change. Really powerful book. It brings together a lot of the stuff that we've been talking about, how we can develop compassion along with evidence-based treatment to help people move towards change. Really great book. What was the other question? <laughs> Did I answer them? Pretty much, yeah. Like podcasts or oh, books podcasts. or websites, all that stuff. I have a great podcast. It's called The Good Life Project. And it's introducing disruptors, people who are very much about transformation, moving from a place of being sort of unstable or stuck to expressing themselves at a, at a very high level, at a macro level. By, by dealing with themselves at a micro level and changing and transforming, they were able to express it in a way that was really life-changing, not just for them, but for, for lots of people. It's, a, it's an amazing podcast. I love that podcast. It's helped me a lot. And how can people get in touch with you, contact you, support your cause, or recruit your services? So we're, we're everywhere on social media. Wide Wonder is a Facebook page. All of my other businesses are a Facebook page. But I think the most important one that, can, that I'd like to express is Wide Wonder, and that's widewonder.life. Um, we're on Instagram. We're on the web. We're, uh, we have YouTube. And the reason why it's so important is that I'm recruiting zero stigma heroes where for their own reasons are willing to commit to changing the way they talk about, the way that they uh, express themselves around their own mental illness or addiction, or they have a loved one who's struggling, how they can disrupt by coming out and being no longer silent, sharing their story either at a private or public level. Social media can be a great agent for change around stigma. Tim Harrington, anything that we didn't cover that you're like, man, I want this out there. You know, I think we covered just about everything. I'm, I'm, I'm talking about this every day. Obviously, it's my life. It's my purpose. So I really feel like you did a great job and we, we, we covered what we needed to cover. And, and, and I want to just give you a shout out and appreciate you for reaching out to me. I really appreciate and everything that you're doing. I'm looking at your books back here and I've looked into your stuff at a deeper level. And, and I got to tell you, 
there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of uh, overlap between us in, in terms of, you know, our commitment to change and our commitment to helping people. So thank you for that. Absolutely. Everybody check out his websites, like him on social media. Tim, thank you so much for being on the show and the kind words and um, many blessings and everything else for the next six months or less. That was a powerful interview. Like I always say, please listen, critically think about it, and then implement. I know a lot of people don't always make it through the end of the episodes, but I encourage you, if you made it here and you, and you talk to your friends about it, encourage them to do it. I think the, the family and vacation and the home life balance part at the end is important. It's something that I didn't get in a lot of those other podcasts that I was listening to. So check them out. Minisodes, Thursdays and Saturdays, those come out. Let me know what you think about that. If you have any episodes that you want me to do for the audience, just send me a message on Facebook. Justin Trostclair, MCC, is the official page of everything about me. You can find the books, the Acupuncture No Needle book, the Today's Choices, Tomorrow's Health book that talks about weight loss, exercise, dieting, and financial health. You can get free chapters at .net slash chapters or slash NA protocol. So that way you can experience the book before you buy them. If you're interested in any of the interviews that I've been a part of where the roles have been reversed, it's .net slash as heard on. The resources page on the website has all the products that I recommend and there's some deals for some of those. So check that out. And as always, if you click any of the hot links in the show notes page for books, we get a little piece of that and we appreciate that as well. The .net slash support is the webpage if you want to buy to host a cup of coffee. And lastly, reviews are always, always appreciated and so grateful when you get them. So that's a doctor's perspective.net slash reviews. Y'all have a great week. We just went hashtag behind the curtain. I hope you will listen and integrate what some of these guests have said. By all means, please share across your social media, write a review, and if you go to the show notes page, you can find all the references for today's guest. You've been listening to Dr. Justin Trostclair, giving you a doctor's perspective. <laughs>